namo tassa pakavato arahato samma samputassa namo tassa pakavato arahato samma samputassa namo tassa pakavato arahato samma samputassa puttang tammang sankang namasami So we have our observance day, which we observe according to the lunar calendar. Four observance days is each lunar month, so it's a good time for us to practice together. So those of you who like to do a bit of extra meditation, we'll sit through to 12 tonight. Uh, observance days are days when we, can, we, we recollect on the path and our, our commitments and such like. And I've been reading a very interesting book on, on uh, moral philosophy and the, uh, the author is, uses anthropology and evolutionary psychology to try to come to some kind of conclusions about um, how we human beings see right and wrong, how that plays out in our minds and in our societies and specifically he deals with some of the very divisive issues in political morality around euthanasia, um, right to life, abortion, those kinds of things. Interesting book. But in it, in it, he's, uh, he talks about his uh, PhD dissertation and um, he's trying to set up a research by concocting very outrageous stories, moral stories, and then presenting them to groups of people, seeing if they respond to the question, is this moral or is this immoral, and then asking them to explain why. And from those explanations, he's trying to prove some ideas in anthropology and evolutionary psychology. So he asks the question, if a family has a pet dog, the dog gets killed in front of the house, gets run over, and they've heard the dogs taste good, they then butcher the dog, fry it up and eat it, moral or immoral, and explain why. And then he, then he takes a even more far out story and he says, the man goes to the grocery store, buys dead chicken, brings it home, has sexual intercourse with it, then fries it up and eats it, moral or immoral. Explain why. <laughs> and uh, I mean, one of the interesting things that comes out of this is, is uh, and this comes from another study, another psychologist does, the idea, that when he interviews, not, when he interviews liberal arts students who have a high sense of autonomy and that morality is really about individual freedoms and individual rights, as long as there's no harm to others, then they obviously struggle with the first one, and they really struggle with the second one. It's morally. It's somehow repugnant, but quite a few tend to say, well, if that's what they want to do, I don't like it, 
that's what they can do. Uh, and and the the study that uh, he quotes uh, is a, a woman does a study on a kind of uh, interviews a lot of very left leaning liberal uh, types of people and develops this acronym weird Western educated industrial rich democratic and that there. Their take on on morality is is so highly individual um, that it's maybe not a good representative sample of what human beings think uh, morality is about. So then he goes to uh, to do his interviews. He says he did his PhD mostly at McDonald's because he then spends time around McDonald's and trying to get people to volunteer to be subjects for his questioning. And a lot of the people that come to the to the McDonald's are, are uh, working class people who aren't highly educated, uh, work hard, so on. And he, and he gets some volunteers for this, and the chicken story, they, they say to him, well, obviously that's immoral. And then he says, why? And they look at him like he's a complete idiot. <laughs> you asking me why? It was very, very kind of interesting analysis. But, so obviously my mind then turns to like the Buddhist ideas of, of morality. Well, Buddhism, when, when I was thinking about it, it doesn't... It doesn't really use the word morality as much as uh, wholesome and unwholesome, skillful and unskillful. And it talks about degrees of skillful and unskillful. So there are degrees of unskillfulness which are profoundly damaging, and there there are degrees of unskillfulness which are um, somewhat disturbing, and there are discrete degrees of unskillfulness which are rather minor, and the same on, on the wholesome side. There are uh, there are things which are profoundly wholesome and helpful and skillful, things which are helpful and skillful which are don't have such profound results. But the whole um, context of, of, of Buddhist ideas, of like Buddhist moral philosophy, is based on a project. And that project is the Enlightenment, not the Enlightenment that we hear about in the kind of Renaissance years or whatever, but the Enlightenment of the Buddha. Um, and so his 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 example uh, is one of of human realization, human possibility, and also um, a human generosity, which offered a path towards the realization that he had. So Buddhist philosophy, in in its moral sense, the moral philosophy, comes from a faith in the Buddha's enlightenment. Uh, which isn't like you have to believe in the Buddha per se as some kind of historical character uh, blindly, but that there is this that there is this possibility in the human heart of something profoundly good and, and this can be realized. And that someone has done that, that this is a possibility, that there is a spiritual transcendent part of our being which can be realized. 
in whatever language we like to point to that. And so the Buddha is a kind of exemplary in that possibility and, and, and he offers a path. He offers a path for that realization. Uh, so the context is, is quite practical. It's not just uh, a kind of a abstract life lived separate from everything else. So one of, just what came to mind now is a bumper sticker in this book. And the bumper sticker is just pointing to sort of some moral relevancies. But the one, one bumper sticker is, your body may be a temple, but my body's an amusement park. <laughs> different, different takes on morality. Um, but in a Buddhist sense, it, it wouldn't just be sort of kind of an arbitrary... Uh, set of principles that you pick up, but they'd be actually prescribed ways of activity that define us in two ways. One as as uh, social beings, and one as individuals who, when we make choices, those choices give results. And those choices are mental, physical, and verbal. So, um, when we when, whenever we do anything, that doing is intentional. Even if we're heedless, even if we're careless, there's still some intention behind it. And that intentionality gives results. And those results can be noticed, they can be reflected upon, because one of the things I think what is implied in, in being a moral being is that we have the capacity to see our the results of our lives in time. Like I can, I can observe what the results of my thinking and my speech and my action are to myself and to others through the course of time. If I didn't have that, it would be hard for me to see cause and effect. But I can do that. So that's one of the ways you might define a moral being. So a monastery, uh, a place like this, or, or a Buddhist... Um, ideal Buddhist society is one where we try to participate in each other's lives in a way which is sensitive um, and and considerate to each other. And part of that is the moral philosophy, the moral precepts that we have not to kill, uh, not to steal, not to be promiscuous, not to abuse each other with wrong language, and not to to get all stoned and drunk and things like that. That's part of it. But, but, but it's more than that. It's, it's a kind of developing a sensitivity which is not just based on my individual preferences. Uh, it's not just based on what I want to happen here for my own individual enlightenment, as it were, for my own uh, individualistic project, but it's rather how can I live together with you in a way which affords you the possibility for enlightenment and affords me the possibility of enlightenment. And it's beautiful. That's very beautiful. And so we have a lot of um, our our life here is is um, governed by by principles which we have inherited to some extent from Thailand, to some extent from the Buddha, to some extent from our own living together. Principles which are, are, are uh, always enhancing a sense of compassion, uh, a sense of caring for each other, uh, a sense of 
not being demanding, a sense of being content with little, uh, a sense of non-harming, a sense of being responsible in our duties, uh, a sense of being um, obedient, obedient in, in, in the hierarchical structures we have, and so on. And um, this is very helpful if it's done skillfully. If it's done from fear, if it's done from the oppression of power and so on, it doesn't work. And I think that's one of the misunderstandings you get in... One, one of the things that modern culture sometimes equates hierarchy with power, authority with power, and power equals oppression equals evil. But it needn't be that way. And so part of our ethical... Uh, considerations here is like we have a we have quite a strong hierarchy, um, and that hierarchy, its usefulness is that it creates a sense of our place we belong in that hierarchy, a sense of stability, and hopefully a, a sense of security that we're not competing for the top job or uh, we're not using our authorities to oppress each other. So there's a, there's a sense of cohesion, a sense of community, a sense of doing this project together. It's done beautifully, and that beauty has to be reciprocal, both the person who has authority in an area and the person who is under that authority, they have to take care of each other. And, and Buddhist social philosophy is always, always that way, the sense of reciprocal, reciprocal caring. And I was talking with um, Tansuvijano at tea time, a nice discussion, and, and I was just indicating that, like in a monastery, the abbot is the senior position, but the monastery also has senior positions of responsibility. So one monk is in charge of the uh, work situation, one monk is in charge of the calendar, one monk is in charge of stores, and, and the, the monk that has responsibility has authority. So it's not always about seniority in terms of how long one is ordained. It would never work that way. So where there's responsibility, that's where authority is given. So if I'm not willing to take responsibility for something, I can't take authority over that. It wouldn't be right. And, and one of the things we're always trying to do uh, as a community is try to make sure that the person who has that responsibility is told. It's told about that. And one of the great sources of conflict in a community is when the person who has the responsibility isn't told on their authority is not just undermined but their their the burden of their responsibility becomes greater because people are making decisions and doing things without consult consulting the person that has actually has that responsibility so that's important so so um, that's just human isn't it this is a human we have so we have this kind of social um, context that we practice within, and and we try to we have what we call kawat. Kawat is the the the, um, the particular uh, etiquettes of a monastery, how we bow, our routines, um, how we uh, take the meals, um, the etiquettes around how we care for our robes and our Bowls and the etiquette of how we ask for forgiveness and, and so many other things. 
and these we all learn as monastics and I think as lay people you kind of if you're living here you kind of pick it you pick it up and that creates a creates a society creates a culture um, and the more we can learn about that and tune into that then that helps us to go beyond the selfishness of the Enlightenment Project because the Enlightenment Project can become a very selfish endeavor where I'm always trying to get my space to do my thing, to do my practice, which is uh, one of those uh, cliche, horrible words you hear in Buddhism. I want to do my practice. And, and whatever happens to you is your problem. So to get out of that danger of meditation becoming a, a selfish, self-aggrandizing, um, leave me alone, I'm practicing kind of mindset, we have the sense of community. But, as I was saying last week, a community can't be enlightened. A community can't be peaceful. It's only individuals that can be enlightened, only individuals can be, can be peaceful. So, there is this also, obviously, there is the individual component, which is very, very important, and that's knowing your own mind, understanding your own mind, understanding where you're coming from, understanding your reactions, understanding your intentions, understanding why you do what you do, why you say what you say, and why you think what you think. Um, obviously, yeah, that, that's very, very important. But that's not that sense of knowing your own mind isn't done in an abstract, it's done in a concrete reality. So, if one were to kind of just say, uh, like, is, is something moral immoral, we would say, well, is it more like, is it skillful or unskillful? So I might um, I might decide not to come to an evening meditation. Uh, it's my duty to come to evening meditation. Is that moral or immoral? It's not a question of morality. Is it skillful or unskillful? So I decide I, I don't want to come to the evening meditation because I rationalize some kind of laziness. And I, you all know how the rational mind can paint the most perfect picture of your the reason you need to do what you need to do and lie right? and lie to you, lie to yourself and so you know, I start to do things from that dishonest state of mind, the result won't be good the result won't be good but if I'm actually I'm sick and, and I'm having some really difficult it's just difficult to go to the evening meditation and I do that then and I know that, and I know the honest result then I needn't fear that result. I know, I know what it's about. So honesty is very important. Uh, uh, inner honesty, such a barami we call it. This kind of sense of truthfulness. Not self-disparagement, but a sense of knowing why you do what you do and where it leads to, rather than the danger of just rationalizing things uh, and, and kind of lying to oneself. That would be a disaster. Um, So in this, in this project of enlightenment, we, um, because we, we, we live together, we live in solitude, we do both, we, found very, we find various challenges coming up, uh, various forms of liking and disliking, uh, various forms of uh, aversion and lo uh, love and hate and um, feeling interested and feeling bored, 
um, feeling inspired and feeling just utterly fed up and so the mind has all these different kinds of movements but our life then is one of surrendering to the form and to the structure and then beginning to take refuge in the witnessing of this change rather than being caught up in the change being a victim to the change and constantly just being in a kind of reactive mode with no freedom and the and the beauty of that is that it is no you know it's it's not a personal project and yet it is a personal project it's not something that I'm just constantly trying to rearrange my life for my own practice, but I'm actually giving up to something and then watching how that affects my mind, and that's the freedom that we have. And one needs to emphasize all that, that the, the, the commitment to a form and a structure which is not personally designed, which is not a kind of... Um, smorgasbord of one's own desires, it's something bigger than that, gives one the freedom to watch the sense of self arising, the sense of resentment arising, the sense of frustration arising. The freedom to actually reorganize life all the time, Uh, like if you had the freedom to just do what you wanted here, would not be a real freedom. Uh, it, It would have no real, I would say it have no real guts to it no real challenge and any vocation is like that any uh, parenting or anything bigger than your own um, preferences has that kind of challenge what can I learn in this situation so it's an opportunity and you know like monastic life is an opportunity we're given requisites we're given uh, we're given praise uh, we're giving, we're given status, uh, all manner of things we we have here, and then, really, it's how well we use this opportunity, how well we we pick up this uh, training, and how diligent and honest we are in in this training. But it is a, it is a very very special opportunity, and the fact that we have enough health, that we have an inclination where we're not just bound up with consumerism. You know, we're concerned with spiritual values, moral values. We have the sensitivity to look at each other in a caring uh, and kind way. These are, these are wonderful, wonderful values that we are a part of. So then the practice, as we say, the practice is how can I live at peace and peacefully coexist with the way things are. And when we talk about Buddhist practice, sometimes we talk in very... Uh, way, abstract ways of attainment. You know, we talk about this monk has this attainment and that monk has that attainment and what does jhana mean and what does stream entry mean and what does arahant mean. So we talk in ways which define some kind of goals that are described in our texts and we talk about and we get we quite often get debates about that and you know, this monk has this and that, that monk doesn't have that and stream entry means this, and jhana means that, and, and so sometimes we, we just dwell in views and opinions about what this project is about. Um, and that's okay. You know, we, have, we can have views and opinions, but, but a, a good question perhaps to, to kind of consider is where does, where does true confidence come from? Where does uh, a real confidence in this life and this path come from? 
And to me, it seems that confidence comes when it works, right? Obviously, if it works, uh, you're going to feel, yeah, this is, this is, this is going the right direction. This is worth it. Um, it's effective, uh, and I understand what's going on. So, and and what would that be? What would it works? What would that mean? It would mean that I think the, you know, the basic stuff of your suffering, my suffering, your suffering. I'd be, I'd be recognizing it. I'd be going beyond it. I'd be becoming a person who has less fear, less anger, less greed, less delusion, less confusion, more compassion, more generosity. It seems that, that seems to me those, you know, more, more stillness, more peace, more insight, more, more confidence intellectually about what this whole business is about. It seems to me that's what confidence would be. Um, sometimes we can have a false confidence, we can have opinions about what we think the path is, but that doesn't really hold water, because as soon as we feel fear or anger, we have some kind of reactive response to life, we're back into the same old soup again. So if we're not addressing the kind of core issues of our personal life, and it is personal, the core issues of our suffering, then I don't think we're going to really feel confident or, or really love this path. So that's the kind of basic question. What are the core core issues in, in my own life that, that have caused me suffering? And how do they manifest now? And, and I'm re- am I really getting beyond them? Am I, or do they just kind of regurgitate and, and, and take up my the kind of conscious space in my life again and again and again in a way where I'm not really getting past them? I just stuck in the same cycles of Greed, hatred, and delusion in ways which, that's very depressing, isn't it? Um, so that's that kind of basic question um, is, is an honest question. And and so from that question, if if some kind of core suffering comes up, then it seems to me that's a good thing, isn't it? Some kind of like fearfulness or, or resentfulness or or um, some sense of loneliness or alienation or, or loss or betrayal or uh, boredom or, you know, if, if something really strong comes up like that, it seems to me that that is a good thing because because that would mean that I now have a chance to understand a core issue of suffering that I, that I get caught up into. I have the equipment, I have the situation, I have the support, I have the the intellectual uh, kind of structures and encouragement and emotional encouragement, go for it. And yeah, you feel rotten. <laughs> I wish it weren't that way, but go for it. This is important. This is very, very important. And so our life doesn't encourage suffering, but it encourages the awakening to suffering, be it minor or major. I might feel just marginally annoyed at someone, or I might feel some great sense of terror running through my heart. It doesn't really matter. So discontent, any kind of discontent, any sense of lack, we're always emphasizing, this is important. The sense of lack is important. Um, and and, and to, to make that kind of statement to yourself, that this, this reaction that now I am experiencing to life, this, this obsession that my thinking patterns are, are now bringing forward, I need to pay attention to this. It's not a failure. It's not wrong. You know, I don't have to go anywhere else. I don't need a compensation. I need this now. 
And that's the awakening. That's the awakening to the the core problem that might arise. And and this this is something that's not just done once. You know, it's done again and again and again and again, over and over again. So from that you can see that our life isn't just a moral issue, right? It becomes a, a um, an existential issue. Like, my existence now is, is important. All of this is important. And what I do now with this has consequences. So, I can do something skillful or unskillful. What would be skillful? What would be unskillful? What could I do now in this situation so that I create the causes for peace in the future? Or what might I do right now that create causes of more confusion in the future? These are the kinds of questions we ask ourselves. And even though now I might feel quite uh, frightened or I might feel um, depressed or annoyed, I can awaken to that and say, well, so what do I need to do now with this? And that's very sober. It's not saying I shouldn't feel this way, that it's wrong. It's a kind of sober awakening. Oh, yeah, I'm really... I'm really angry at this person, or, or, yeah. So I no longer project this out to the world around, but I take responsibility for it, and I begin to, to notice it as a particular formation. You know, I see it as an object, and I, and I make these, these interesting statements that the Buddha asks us to, how to perceive this. So, like, the one I really like, and you often hear, is, this is happening in awareness. Or this is changing. Or this is a phenomena that comes and goes. It's not who I really am. Or this different kind of language that we use. And that's the language of non-grasping. The language of non-grasping. And understanding non-grasping leads to the confidence of endurance. And the confidence to endure something which seems unendurable leads to the eradication of that cause of suffering. Um, so the confidence to know that the most horrible feeling you might have or the most beatific feeling you might have is something that's in awareness. It's in the mind. It's not something uh, away from you. It's right here in awareness. You begin to, 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 to find that, that space and peace in the mind which is beyond the beatific and the hell realms neither heaven nor hell, neither neither good nor bad. This takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of courage to not blame. It takes a lot of courage to look at fear and not seek some kind of a solution outside the fear, huh? running away from it. It takes a lot of courage to, to feel bored, to feel utterly bored with life. And just say, no, okay, we'll do boredom today. And just to try just to be totally bored. <laughs> very hard, very hard to do. And, and so sometimes in monastic life, the days can go very quickly. Things, lots to do, and everything's going well. But sometimes monastic life, maybe on a retreat, on your own, not much form, not much structure, the day seems endless. Just this long, long day of... Of, of, of boredom, nothing happening. That's important. Very important to, to know something like that, boredom. And to, to actually be willing to, to feel that for long periods of time. And what happens 
what happens is then the need for interest, excitement, things to stimulate the mind, that need for external objects to always fulfill you, compensations, that need falls away. Why? Because I was willing to be with this unfulfilled desire. I was willing to be with boredom. And the other, just the kind of need, the kind of restlessness of needing to, to do something, looking at that, feeling that. So all the time we're coming back to that, to the refuge of knowing change and knowing unfulfilled desire. Knowing unfulfilled desire and no longer running with desire. Not rejecting it, not saying it's wrong, but also seeing it as an object. Because when, when desire arises, when a yearning comes up, and we see yearning is yearning, and we bear with it, when that yearning ceases, when desire ceases, when craving ceases, we are opening gates to the deathless. Third noble truth. The, 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 the cessation of, of craving has to be realized. The cessation of suffering has been realized. And how do we do that? How do we do that? Well, in any given moment, we just keep remembering that this moment is just this way, just this way, and what am I creating around it? So whether it's ugly or beautiful, whether it has emotional, you know, emotionally very powerful moment, or just a kind of ho-hum, it's just this way. And, and, and that, that pure attention, that pure awareness on this moment, it is as it is, is surprisingly difficult. Isn't it surprisingly difficult how we can spend a whole day and never really wake up to the way things are. We can be analyzing and thinking and doubting and regretting and resenting and distracting and, and then one moment you say, oh yeah, but this moment is this way. And that silence, that stillness, is peace. And then the restlessness of the desire mind then churns up some kind of a problem. So if we can do that, if we can make that a kind of root practice, ground practice of this is the way it is now, and what's being created around it? What's the problem being created around it? What's the thinking patterns being created around it? Then, as those become objects, they don't delude us, they don't confuse us. The, I'd say the kind of, uh, what do you call that in, in a rifle scope? The crosshairs. The crosshairs of enlightenment, if I may say, are present moment awareness and what you're doing. Right? Because present moment awareness is like this settling in. This is the way it is now. And then whatever you're doing, whether you're um, cutting the lawn, sitting in meditation, eating your food, that's what's happening. That's this way now. And, and, and you kind of do it. You do it fully. Chopping wood, carrying water. You do it fully. That keeps you in the present moment. And that's the crosshairs of enlightenment. And then the, the thoughts of past and future, anxieties and, and resentments and memories come up and try to create a sense of a self. But if you keep those crosshairs, if you keep your aim there in the moment, present moment awareness, what am I doing? Then past and future begin to see, begin to be seen as just moments in consciousness right now, right now, right now, right now, as we've been reading from Venerable Panyawada. So the becoming mind takes takes something like um, 
obsessive thinking. Let's say you you've let's say um, you've had a maybe it's like averse obsessive. You're really resentful of someone, and your mind just keeps thinking about that person and about their fault. That person, their fault. That person, their fault. That person, their fault. That person, their fault. and it just obsesses your mind. You can't sleep. What What do you need to do? Well, many things you can do, but somehow you have to stay in the present moment and see that thought is just coming from a memory. And if you can stay with that in the present moment, the karma of that, the strength of that certainly will come up, but you, you, keep, you keep aiming in the present moment. You see, that's a memory, that's a memory, that's a memory, and it can't delude you. It might have power to keep coming back. You can think other things, you can think good qualities of a person, but sometimes the mind just does that, it just gets obsessed, doesn't it? Maybe a fearful thing, uh, it might be around health, some kind of health issue starts to just just obsess your mind, just kind of, what's going to happen, what's going to happen, this symptom, this symptom, this symptom, what do you have to do? Well, go to a doctor and do all of that, but sometimes these are just patterns, these are just patterns. So you see, oh, this is fear, and fear has this energy and you keep you keep aiming at present moment what am I doing present moment what am I doing so the very obsessive mind the very obsession becomes a training exercise now it's no longer just this horrible thing which you're trying to survive through distraction but it actually becomes an exercise in present moment awareness and that's the that's the change you have to make in your attitude to this thing sure I don't want this but this is an opportunity for me now to be really skillful and stay in the present moment. That's my opportunity. That's my chance now. And if you change your mind to that attitude and you see this, this is a training now, I have to just be really, really present to this, uh, it makes sense. It has meaning. Right? It's no longer just a bad joke, something that's inflicted on me that I survived, but actually it becomes something quite powerful and, and important for me to become stronger in my awareness. And sometimes life's not now. Sometimes life is just quite gentle and beautiful and harmonious and so on. There's different ways that life presents itself. So rather than think of morality, is it skillful or unskillful? The more we can be mindful, the more we can be compassionate, the more we can be clear about our own fears, the better we'll be able to make decisions. Who knows? You just don't know how it's going to work out. Certainly we can, we can think them through, how, how am I going to deal with that? But also just in the present moment we get more and more confidence in our own stillness, in compassion, and our ability to respond to life. So I think this kind of practice does prepare you for those pressure times and, and times of deep stress because you, you have some sense of what is, what is wholesome, what is good, and you can make your decisions based on that and your experience. All right, I'll leave that for your reflection. Pandamayam Tamagata Satu Karan Panama Sayam Satu Karan Panama Sayam